Welcome to Success Fundamentals, hosted by myself, Chris Sykes, and my co-host, Brian Gosek. We are on a mission to seek out some of the most successful people in our network that have been able to define what success means to them so you can draw the map of your own path and take your first steps. We hope you enjoyed today's episode to get one step closer to your success goals. Starting a business is exciting. And one of the fundamentals of starting a business is making sure you have the proper legal structure. But legal structure only takes you so far. You want to make sure that your personal assets are protected. And that's where Corporate Direct comes in. Getting started is easy. First, you tell them about your business or investment. Second, they do a business name check. Third, they file the paperwork. And fourth, you receive the documents and you're official. To get $100 off your business setup, go to successfundamentals.com. Click on the Corporate Direct link. When the information form asks, where did you hear about us? Type in Success Fundamentals and they will take it from there. Corporate Direct, asset protection done right. Now, back to the show. Welcome to another edition of Success Fundamentals, where we give you the fundamentals tools necessary to be successes in your own lives by people who have already done it. I am your co-host, Chris Sykes. And I am Brian Goldsack. And today we have a very special guest, someone who is very important in fighting against the hunger in America. We have the CEO, Joel Berg of Hunger Free America. Joel, welcome. Thank you, Chris and Brian. Glad to be here. Absolutely, absolutely. Happy so to have you. You've been with Hunger Free America for a little over 20 years. Um, but take us back to where your passion for nonprofits and how you got started on this journey. So I started as a social justice activist, literally in junior high school. I was on the student paper and wrote an article on drug abuse in my suburban junior high school community in you know, the mostly white suburbs in the 70s before the problem was even acknowledged in the sort of just say no 80s. Uh, and the school then censored the article and why they might discipline me or kick me out. I got some support from the Student Press Law Center, some lawyers who support student journalists. Uh, and, and then I published my article in the, the local regular newspaper, not the school newspaper. And then I started campaigning for school board candidates who supported me uh, and then just got involved in politics through that started campaigning more broadly for candidates for public office. Uh, in college at Columbia University, I was an anti-apartheid activist. I was pretty uh, appalled uh, that my rich university, Columbia, continued to invest in the oppressive racist regime in South Africa. And we were took over an administration building, and we were one of the really first campuses to highlight that. We helped kick off a wave of student activism around uh, divestment around the country. And obviously, there were many, many, many factors, not the least of which was the mass engagement and suffering of the Black South African majority. But uh, Nelson Mandela did credit the divestment movement to it giving a big push to the fall of apartheid. So I'll for, be forever proud of, of, of that. I ran for school board when I was 18, almost one, ran for state senate when I was 21. Uh, when uh, you're fresh out of, of, of college, I knew I was going to get killed and did. But I, I realized that it was probably better for me working for other people who, who I believed in than campaigning myself, uh, the fundraising uh, was never uh, you know, very uh, appealing to me, especially the things you'd have to do to raise those funds. 
uh, also the uh, uh, just uh, you, where I grew up in the suburbs, uh, homeless shelter is coming in and virtually every even progressive politician felt they had to oppose it. I said, boy, that's that's uh, I respect people who enter the arena, but I'm probably wor better working behind the scenes. And I, I considered myself an activist also working on campaigns. I was driven by women's rights issues, uh, even in uh, the 70s, early 80s, LGBTQ rights issues. I'm proud to be early <laughs> as a supporter of that, certainly racial justice issues, environmental issues. And, and all those issues really came together to for me with the hunger issue. I worked for uh, then candidate Clinton. He won uh, the presidency. Uh, my area of issues expertise was the AmeriCorps National Service Program, a sort of a domestic Peace Corps that President Clinton uh, started uh, with the support from Congress. And through that, I started working on hunger work. And when I really started focusing on hum hunger work, I realized this is my life's calling. Number one is, boy, I really love food. <laughs> I just traveled, drove myself over 15,000 miles this summer, 37 states from coast to coast, visiting hunger sites around uh, the country, visiting with nonprofit groups, visiting with members of our AmeriCorps VISTA program, visiting with fellow activists, talking to hungry people. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I do believe even if you're fighting against something ghastly like hunger, you've got to build in at least a little enjoyment as much as you can. So I did eat as many regional specialties along the way. Uh, you know, on, on, on that trip, I got a little uh, lobster rolls in Maine, a little barbecue in North Carolina, of course, you know, pig, hog in North Carolina, beef in, in, in Texas some amazing uh, green chili uh, enchiladas in, in uh, uh, New, New Mexico, a really first-class hamburger at a takeout diner in, uh, in uh, not far from Bend, Oregon. I, I hate to admit it as a New Yorker, but occasionally uh, I'll have a deep dish pizza in, in Chicago. <laughs> had that. And, and, and the most amazing thing is, is uh, traveling around is that because of our diversity as a country now, and I, I just can't really grasp uh, what's going through the head or the heart of the people who think diversity is somehow a downside for America, when it should be crystal clear that it benefits all of us. It benefits us culturally. It benefits us culinarily. It benefits us economically. It benefits uh, uh, us you know, spiritually. But I will say because of the growth of diversity, it's amazing where you can get what foods. I got an amazing uh, Jamaican jerk uh, chicken dish in Roanoke, Virginia, and I live in, in Brooklyn, New York, home of probably the largest uh, Jamaican-American population in the United States. And, and this jerk chicken in Roanoke, Virginia, I hate to admit it, as a New Yorker, as a Brooklyn, I competed with that. I got a really good Thai food in Dothan, Alabama, a really good Vietnamese food in Bentonville, Arkansas. Uh, and uh, and uh, you, can get, you can now get uh, good... Uh, Mexican-American food virtually everywhere in the country Mexican-Americans now live, which is frankly virtually everywhere in the country. So my point is I love food so much. I can't imagine. I can't, I, you know, I, it's, it's appalling to think of people homeless. It's appalling to think of people not being able to afford health care because we have a barbaric country that doesn't make it free like all other civilized country does. But just the idea that people can't eat 
is just so appalling to me. And as I said, it, it ties together the racial justice issues I care about because the largest number of people in America who are hungry are white. But there's no question that people of color, because of systemic structural racism, are more likely to be hungry. Uh, you know, I care deeply about, again, women's rights and, and uh, households headed by single women are three times as likely to be hungry as households uh, headed uh, by men. I care about disability rights. People with mental and physical disabilities are far more likely to be hungry. I care deeply about the environment. Uh, because how our food is produced has a huge impact on the environment. And I care deeply about worker rights and economic rights and economic inequality. You know, just thinking about the idea that, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos spent uh, $5.5 billion, billion dollars to send him and his brother, not even to space, really, to suborbit for 10 minutes for $5.5 million, he's, he's got, uh, I think, something 1.3 million employees, and instead he could have given them each a $4,200 raise. So that's what enrages me, and that's why I really took to the hunger issue. So I was a political appointee of President Clinton when George W. Bush became uh, you know, president in 2001. I lost my job, and I really didn't want to become a corporate lobbyist. Uh, given that people were running governments both at the national level and at the state and city level in my hometown, New York, I didn't want to work for Mayor uh, Giuliani by any means, uh, that the only option really was to go to the nonprofit sector from government. And at the time, to be blunt about it, I thought I was uh, capable of running a national nonprofit group, but the, the bias of nonprofits against government was so great, no national group would hire me to run it. I could have been sort of a, a mid-level fish for a big national organization. I interviewed to be communications director at a number of national organizations, but it wasn't really a good fit. I had a really clear idea of what I think needed to be done, how it could be communicated, and uh, I didn't see that as a fit, as a good fit. So it, it appeared to me is that the only place that would really hire me was a very small nonprofit. Uh, that uh, and so I came to what was then called the New York City Coalition, you know, uh, against hunger. This is in in June of of uh, two thousand and one. Uh, we had I, I think something like uh, six or seven employees working only four days a week. We had about uh, forty thousand or sixty thousand dollars in the bank and eighty thousand dollars worth of work we've been paid to do. So we were functionally in, in debt. And, and uh, I only knew one of our board members that hired me at the time for my previous work. And she said to me, well, isn't this too small a job for you? And I, I came up with a, you know, a very arrogant uh, answer, which turned out to be true. I'll make it a bigger job. And, and, and so from that point over the 20 years, I grew that small organization into a really impactful nationwide organization. And not because I think the, the really test of a nonprofit is how much money and staff you have. And I think one of the greatest illnesses in the nonprofit sector is too many people judge their success by how much money and staff they have. So I'm not judging our success by that. That being said, to carry out the mission we needed to carry out to do the direct service work we're doing, to do the advocacy work we're doing. We did need more money and staff, and we did need a national footprint. A lot of what we do is advocacy, trying to get elected officials to do the right thing. And in New York, 
most of our elected officials agreed with us. They didn't agree with us in Utah and Arizona and, and much of the rest of the country. And that's why we really went nationwide. And, and so I had this burning belief uh, that I have even more so today, that it's just ridiculously unacceptable that we have hunger in the richest country in the history of the world. You know, there are now so many billionaires in America. And if they come on your podcast and talk about their success, God bless them. But there's so many billionaires in America, merely having a billion dollars doesn't necessarily make you wealthy enough to get on the Forbes 400 list of the 400 wealthiest Americans. When I was growing up, there were like two billionaires. Howard Hughes, <laughs> who made his money in, in aerospace and then movies, and J. Paul Getty, who made his money out of Getty Oil, right? And we knew how they made their money building stuff. You look at this list of you know, 400 billionaires, the hedge funders, you know, they make money when the economy is good or bad and how they get ever richer really is beyond me. I'm an opportunity capitalist. I really believe you should be able to come here like my grandparents did and working your tushy off, be able to get ahead. But we've replaced that with crony capitalism. So my long answer of what motivates me is just, you know, do I get upset when there's a natural disaster that isn't caused by climate change, like an earthquake? You know, and, and people die, yes. Although it's true, even that is is touched by inequality of wealth because a place that's poor that has less well-built places like Haiti has more deaths in an earthquake than, you know, the West Coast now would say. But in general, if something's just a natural disaster, I'm sad and I'm upset like any other human being. But what really upsets me, really outrages me, are things that are totally unnecessary, that are totally within our control. Hunger in America is totally unnecessary. It's totally in our control. So long answer, but that's how I got into this work. And that's why I stay motivated in this work. And knowing that we do have the tools at our disposal to entirely end it if we do the right things. What was your so question? Jo <laughs> <laughs> so Joel, you're giving me so many different uh, thoughts and therefore different questions. Uh, and I feel like I could talk to you probably for four hours, but there was a few things that after this, we'll get when it's safe, we'll get an actual coffee sometime. That sounds good. So so one of the big ones that I had was uh, it definitely seems like hunger in America is insane because you hear something. You hear that like we are the first or second most obese nation on the planet. But then you're like, how can that be true? If there's still hunger here, so. In your experience, what does hunger look like in America? Uh, why is it happening? Right. Like, what, what is the, the root cause for the, the people that are suffering from hunger? So understanding hunger in America requires a little nuance. And unfortunately, America doesn't do nuance. You know, you, uh, in 1910, uh, when there was no safety net in America whatsoever, hunger in America really did look like hunger in North Korea today or parts of Central America, or, you know, Ethiopia today, where people were really starving to death. That's, that's not the case with, you know, hunger, food insecurity today, even in the pandemic, right? It's not people going months at a time with no food and starving to death. It's generally people skipping meals, parents going without food to feed their children, uh, kids going through the dumpster in back of their school to get you know, meals, and most commonly, people buying less healthy, cheaper food because it's cheaper and affordable and exists in their neighborhood when fresh produce doesn't exist in their neighborhood. 
And so, you know, there's this wonkish term counterintuitive, which means something that's true sounds differently than you would be intuitive about, sounds differently than common sense. And the idea that we have mass you know, food insecurity and hunger in a country with mass obesity is counterintuitive, but it's absolutely true. Now, there are complex reasons people are obese. I'm a bit overweight. I'm the fat hunger guy just because uh, you know, I did eat all those things across the country. I could have gotten, <laughs> gotten steamed to tofu and kale at many of those places, but I, I, no one held a gun to my hand and said, you must have that, you know, brisket, you know, <laughs> in, uh, uh, you know outside of Mount Pleasant, Texas instead. So there are complex, there's taste reasons, there's mm. cultural reasons, there are genetic reasons, there are emotional reasons, you know, uh, you know, why people are, you know, uh, heavier. There are, you know, as we know, you know, billionaire, you know, people who are, you know, very overweight. That being said, there's no question that poverty and hunger are very significant additional risk factors for uh, obesity. And in fact, the uh, most obese neighborhoods in the United States also tend to be the hungriest. Uh, and, and why? Healthier food is much more expensive than less healthier food. Healthier food often just doesn't exist in low-income neighborhoods. There are food deserts where there just are no green grocers or, 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 or farmer's markets. If it does, it's unaffordable. And, you know, the yuppie foodies will always lecture me, oh, low-income people should just grow all their own food from scratch. Well, most don't own land, and most live in parts of the United States where there's a few wheat harvest season, not a 12-month growing season. And, and I like eating all 12 months out of the year, not the few weeks that the foodies tell me I should eat seasonal food. So that's number one. And number two, it's really time intensive. You know, there are a lot of stereotypes about poverty in America. The biggest is people aren't working. The vast majority of people in poverty in America are working. They're working one or two or three jobs. Just not making jobs, enough to pay sure. rent. If, even if you're a state that pays, let's say, $15 minimum wage. You know, the national minimum wage is still $7.25 an hour. Some states in the South are below that. But let's say you're making the, the $15 minimum wage. That's maybe $25,000 a year for full-time work. And let's say you're lucky enough to get a one-bedroom apartment for you and your family that's $1,500 a month. And in many places, paying $15 minimum wage, you, you can't even get something for even $1,500 you know, $1, a month. But okay, let's say you get $1,500 a month. That's $18,000 in rent for a year. So if you're earning $25,000 and, and paying $18,000 in rent, why are people friggin' shocked that you don't have a lot of money left over for childcare, which is really friggin' expenses, and you need childcare if you're working, transportation, either gas or public transit, which is really expensive in this country. You still have to pay extras for healthcare, insane. You have to pay extra for prescription drugs, in, 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 insane. Clothing, occasionally, we don't want people walking to work nude. And then, oh yeah, whatever is left over after paying utilities and everything else, food. Right. And then people work in two or three hours, you two or three jobs, traveling often by public transportation. And, you know, from some on the right say, well, if people were more religious, then they, they'd be successful. Well, you know, long the people are most religious people in America and, and, and the world. So they're working six or seven days a week. They're praying the seventh day. They're raising their kids. They don't have a nanny. They're someone else's nanny, and they're their own family's nanny. They don't have a home health care attendant to take care of grandma, even though they may be someone else's home health care attendant. They're taking care of their own grandma. So they're working all this time, 
They're praying. They're, 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 they're traveling by public transportation. They're raising their kids. They're taking care of their elderly. This idea that they have all this massive time on their hands to grow everything from scratch and then soak their beans overnight so they can cook every meal from scratch is preposterous. And that's why even if they do have the money, they don't have the time to get the healthiest food. And that is why hunger and obesity are often flip sides of the same malnutrition going. In addition, you know, I, I have a professional job. Uh, we're recording this a, a, a at uh, 1030 uh, Eastern time. I was able to work out a, a time to record this with you. I ran this morning and I was able to say to you, no, I can't do this at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Most low income people, they're on the clock. They don't set their hours. <laughs> you know, they don't have time to exercise. They often don't have safe public parks near them. They can't afford gym membership. So that's why hunger and obesity is flip side of the same malnutrition coin. If I mean, add to this conversation, there are well-meaning people like yourself who may not understand that connection, but there's also people who are paid to try to convince us this isn't a problem because it's in their self-interest of their bosses. And let me say this clearly. Everyone goes to me, oh, well, there's no one pro-hunger. That's not true. <laughs> the forces that are lobbying against paying their workers enough to feed their family, they're pro-hunger. The forces that are for cutting rather than expanding federal nutrition assistance programs, they're pro-hunger. And the politicians that vote that way, let's be very, very clear, they're pro-hunger. So in the same way people are paid a lot of money by some companies to lie about climate change, oh, we don't know if it's really happening, if it is happening. We don't know if it's caused by humans. If it is caused by humans, we don't know what's causing it. Very similar people pay a lot of money to say, oh, we don't know if hunger really exists because there's obesity, ignoring all the data or ignoring what I'd say to quote the great philosopher Chico Marx, don't believe who you're going to believe me or your own eyes. Go to any of the tens of thousands of food pantries or soup kitchens. Most are in church basements where people are lined up hours before they're, they're, they're open. They're not lined up because it's fun to line up in the cold or the heat starting you know, often before sunrise. They're lined up because they're hungry. So people lie about whether this is a real issue. They lie about what's causing it. We know what causes it, but food isn't affordable when you build it into how much you have to spend on everything else with your low wages. And we know what solves it. You know, we know what we almost solved in America in the 1970s by paying living wages and having an adequate safety net. That's what the developed world's done. So that's that's why I get so frustrated that we're not having a robust, honest debate over this. People with an agenda, you know, uh, are doing it. And they say, oh, if we pay our workers more, we're worried they'll lose jobs. You know, I'd, I'd have marginally more respect from them if they just said, I don't want to pay my workers more because I want six vacation homes instead of four. But their argument that they don't want to pay their workers more because they think it's really going to hurt their workers, uh, that is such a BS. It's beyond, you know, uh, you uh, believe. And, and so that's the nature of hunger in America, rationing food, people. And let me say, just because it's not Ethiopia or or or. Uh, you know, uh, or, you know, Honduras or North Korea. It doesn't mean this doesn't have huge problems. The level of hunger we have in America makes kids do less well in school. To be schooled, you must be fueled. To be well-read, you must be well-fed. Those are my two Dr. Seuss-like uh, lines. You know, workers can't work if they're hungry. Senior citizens can't stay independent if they're hungry. So hunger in our society not only saps us morally, it costs our society $167 billion a year 
because of the drag on our economy, the drag on our healthcare system, the drag you know, on, on, on healthcare for senior citizens who are forced out of their, their home. So uh, I'm getting pretty far afield of it, but that's hunger in, in, in America. We should not be sanguine that we're doing marginally better than some of the poorest countries on the planet. You know, we don't compare our space program, you know, to uh, Honduras. We don't compare our you know, Olympic team to North Korea. And we should be bragging that our social systems are marginally better than there. You know what, Joe, you, you, you speak with a lot of passion. I, I really do appreciate that because I grew up in poverty. I understand exactly what you're talking about firsthand because growing up in my household, it was ramen noodles, hot dogs and bologna, you know, you know, and you have enough of that over time. You you develop bad eating habits because of what's affordable to you. So what I would say, if you don't mind saying, did you did your family receive any government help? Did you get school meals? Did your family get food stamps? No, actually. Um, Why? Because they were too proud. My mom was. She yeah. didn't want to. She didn't want to be on that stuff. And I, you know, and you know, even though it was from a pride standpoint, I get it. But then you had to look at your kids too. But then it's but um, and, and half of all Americans at some point in their life will get food stamps now. Half of all Americans. And I tell people, don't think of it as welfare. Think of it as the same as unemployment insurance. The vast majority of people get SNAP, get it for short periods of time, eight months. And the vast majority of their careers, they're paying taxes to pay for it. But you don't see the billionaires upset about giving aid. You know, it's only low income people who are guilted and given the stigma into saying, oh, somehow you're bad if you get help. But continue. Sorry, I digress. No, no, it's, 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 it's fine. It is because so then I ask you then being the CEO of someone who's very passionate about solving the hunger issue in America. So what do you think is the pathway forward to start that? Because, you know, a, there's a, a lot of a lot of stats are out, you know, like Brian just said, we're obese. But then it's what you was what set of numbers or data that you're you're paying a, attention to. So from your standpoint, being a CEO of this nonprofit that that is attacking hunger, what is the pathway forward in these income in these areas where, like you said, it's low income wages, they can't afford good food. So how do you go about doing that in those type of communities? It's actually pretty easy. We need to create jobs that pay living wages and then ensure that there's an adequate safety net for folks when the wages aren't enough. And we need to use those programs to make sure healthier food is more affordable, more accessible, and more convenient in every neighborhood of the United States. And that seems daunting, but it's not as daunting as many of the other problems we, we face in, in, uh, in America. And how do we get our political system to do that? We do it by building the political movement to do it and make sure that the people most impacted are in leadership roles of it. You know, 100, 120 years ago, there was rampant child labor in America. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase breaker boys. It was little boys who were sent to the front of anthracite coal mines to break up the coal. Right, exactly. And they were sent there specifically because their fingers were so small they could get in the crevices. It was yeah, horrific. You're, you're talking you know, to a guy that's in Scranton, Pennsylvania right now. So I've heard, I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And the kids like would lose arms and fingers and die of black lung disease in their teens. 
And everyone said, oh, you can't end child labor. You know, it's always been here, always will be. But a social movement was built to demand it. We've said, oh, women can't vote. It's always been that way. Nothing can change. Black people can't vote in the South. It's always been that way. But social movements were built up to demand it. And one changes. And no social movement in the history of the world has been won by one people on behalf of another. Right. If the women's movement was still waiting for us men, they wouldn't be voting. You know, we've had very imperfect progress on civil rights for African-Americans, but progress. A Voting Rights Act, a Civil Rights Act, an African-American president. We still have a long friggin' way to go to get beyond the prison industrial complex and systemic racism. But the progress we've had wouldn't have happened if it wasn't a black populated and black run movement. Right. And, you know, some white people paid the ultimate price for the civil rights movement. Some gave their lives. But by and large, it was black populated and black run movement. So was the marriage equity movement run by you know, a gay and lesbian you know, uh, people. And this idea in the poverty realm that upper middle class white people like me can sort of just guilt fellow upper middle class white people to feel bad about this. And they're automatically going to raise wages for their workers and pay more in taxes. It's just ridiculous. And so one of the things we're doing in Hunger Free America is we're really empowering low income people to speak out on their own behalf. And we really need resources to do that because it's the most important thing we're doing and the hardest thing to get funded. But lowering people who go to pantries and kitchens, who've gone to pantries and kitchens, come meet with elected officials with us. They come testify before government bodies. They speak to the media. And that totally changes the conversation. I'd like to brag that I'm perhaps one of the top experts on hunger in America, with the not too minor exception of the 50 million Americans who experienced it over the pandemic. Every one of them is more of an expert on it than me. And I'd like to believe I'm a pretty effective advocate. So if I go into a congressperson's office and say, congressperson, don't cut you know, food benefits from a working mother, maybe that'll influence them. But if that working mother is in their office and saying, you can't take away this food from my family, it's 10 times more impactful. So that's really what we need to do, build a movement. And every social movement in the world that's one has done three things mobilize the people most impacted to be leaders Two, convince people in the middle who didn't already agree with you. And too many progressives spend too much time on social media or hanging out in a coffee shop in neighborhoods with people who already agree with them and will just yes each other to death. That's why on my trip, I just drove myself around the country. I just didn't go to New York and California and Washington state, you know, and Oregon and Massachusetts. You know, I went to Alabama and Mississippi, Texas, you know, Utah, you know, uh, Wyoming, you know, uh, Missouri, very conservative places. You need to talk to people who don't agree with you. Not all of them are going to be convinced. Honestly, if there's some people who can't convince, be convinced that it was a bad, that a mob violently took over the U.S. Capitol and tried lynching the vice president of their own party. You may not be able to convince them of, of what I'm talking about, but if there are convincible people, and particularly people of faith who want to look at the Old Testament and talk about all the anti-hunger passages and that, talk about the New Testament in Matthew 25, when Christ said, when you fed the least of me, you fed me, and when you failed to feed the least of me, you failed to feed me, basically saying that if you feed the hungriest people, it's as if you're feeding the Lord, Lord. And if you don't feed the hungriest people, it's as if you're giving the brush off to the board. And so we've got to convince people in the middle. And lastly, we have to have a respectful, polite debate with the other side, but we can't let them slide. We can't 
keep saying, oh, this isn't political. No one's bad on hunger. We have to call them out and let the country know that just as, you know, there are some people who are against taking guns out of the hands of killers. And we understand that there's sharp political derides on that. There are some people who are against raising wages for workers and against uh, making sure they have enough food and we have to call them out. So long answer to end this problem, we need to build the political movement. How do we do it? Mobilize hungry, poor people, convince people in the middle it's in their self-interest and in their moral values to end hunger and then not let the other side get away with the BS that's saying uh, that somehow raising wages is going to re reduce employment, which is just untrue. So that's what we've got to do. It's tough, but it's not as tough as having hunger in America. And, and, and you know, and, I, and people say, oh, what you're doing, boy, what sacrifices you're making. I'm like, please, you know, I've done nothing. You know, uh, the first Native Americans 10 or 20,000 years ago who crossed the Bering Land Strait to, to, to discover America, them, not um, Columbus, that was tough, right? You, you know, the women who were fighting for the right to vote, chaining themselves to a, a, a polling place to demand the right to vote, that was tough. John Lewis crossing the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, almost getting beaten to death and then going back and marching another day for the right to vote. That was tough. My father volunteering for the Air Force in World War II and seeing his friends shot down out of the sky. That was tough. And a single parent looking her kids in the eye saying there might not be enough food tonight. That's tough. What I'm doing and what I'm asking your viewers and your listeners to do, that's easy. And to honor all the people who risked their lives to get us where we are, the least we can do, the least we can do is pick up the torch and build a new social movement to do the next obvious thing. Say we ended child hunger. I'm sorry, we ended child labor. We ended slavery. Got women the right to vote. We advanced on civil rights. Now, for God's sakes, let's just get everyone food. So Chris and I, eventually you're going to kick this into a very Joel focused conversation. You, I, you, you, you can do that now. I'm a, my <laughs> friends will tell me I'm not adverse to talking about me, but always what people can learn to do from this. No, no, no. And, and this was, even if, even if we only dedicate a little time at the end to, towards you, I think that your message was so powerful that, uh, I've already learned so much, so thank you. But, but um, also, I am my life mission, right? I define, you know, yes, I have fun and I collect lots of music and go see live music and eat food, but this, this is indistinguishable from my life. I, I didn't have children in part because this work is my child. I'm so dedicated. I, I just wouldn't have other time to it. And it is a lot of work. And, and do I enjoy it? Most times I actually don't enjoy it. It's a compulsion. It's a commitment. It's a requirement, uh, a commandment, uh, so to speak. It's not always a lot of fun, particularly raising money and managing the, the staff. But that's why I do it. But the best thing I get out of it, most of my friends, most human beings I know at one or more points in their life have real crises. Oh, what am I meant to be here for? What's my life about? Mm. And, and, and most human beings go through that. I can honestly say I've never had a single day in my life where I've had to worry about that. I know exactly 
what my life's about. I know exactly what I'm supposed to be here doing. And as tough as things have been over the last few years, I've never really been truly depressed. I've been frustrated and aggravated and saddened, but never truly personally depressed because I know what my calling is to wake up every morning and do. And that's what keeps me motivated. Joel, we have a lot of listeners that are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs or aspiring business owners. So my question for you is, let's say they, they are moved by uh, what you've said today and they still have aspirations to perhaps want to be one of those billionaires. Is there some type of middle ground? Let's say one of our listeners does become the next multi-multi-billionaire. What would you say to that listener when they're at that point um, to, to still have their wealth, but not forget about, let's say, their employees? Like, is, is there a way you can have the best of both worlds? Yes. And let me be clear. I'm not against wealth accumulation, as I said. And, and you know, some people to the left of me criticize myself for saying I'm, I'm an opportunity capitalist and blame all our problems on capitalism, when in fact, things are pretty miserable in Cuba. Things are pretty miserable in, 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 in China. You know, things were certainly, you know, miserable in the old Soviet Union. So the problem isn't capitalism per se. The, cap- the problem is throughout human history, people have, uh, with money and power, have trampled on the people below them to increase their money and power. In America, that happens to be through crony capitalism now. So I'd say, by all means, get a billionaire. Become a billionaire, but bring the people who brought you there up with you and pay your fair share of, of, of taxes. You know, this idea, I'm a self-made person. If you went to a, even a public, you know, uh, elementary or junior high or high school, no, you're not. If your workers went to public schools, no, they're not. If you uh, use the internet, which was invented by the government, no, you're not self-made. If you ship your goods and services over public roads and through public ports and through public airports, no, you're not. Uh, you know, uh, and have a little self-awareness. This idea that only poor people are dependent, you know, when you get made it on your own. If you're riding your private jet, right, and you're the only passenger on that jet, you're getting help from government air traffic controllers. You are dependent on the government. And no even liberal, you know, libertarian billionaire is going to say, okay, I don't want a government air traffic control. I want my pilot to work it out with the other pilots. No friggin' way, right? Now, if also on the tarmac, there is a commercial jet with 300 people on it, and they're getting the same help from air traffic controllers, and there are 350 people on it, you got to accept that at that moment, you're getting 350 times the help from the federal government as those passengers on the plane. And many Americans can never afford a plane ticket. So you're getting infinitesimally more help, infinitely more help, I meant, from the federal government than people who can't afford a plane. So first of all, have a little self-awareness. Second, bring the people up with you. You know, sure, have two vacation homes. Great. Do you really need seven vacation homes when your workers don't earn enough to feed their families? Seriously. You know, I earn uh, about three times my lowest paid employees. And I'm, you know, I think I should reduce the, the, the ratio uh, of that. And I earn $138,000 a year. I'm very transparent, uh, you know, uh, about, you know, uh, you know, what I earn. And I think people who run these organizations should have solid middle class, you know, uh, lifestyles. And, uh, and some of your richer people say, oh, 138, that's nothing. Well, that's still three times practically the medium family income. So I'm doing okay. 
But I also made sure my lowest paid employees, not including people in our AmeriCorps VISTA National Service Program, make about a third of what I make. Most are much younger and much less, you know, uh, experienced, frankly, work you know, a few hours. And, and can you set a ratio in your company? Maybe not three to one, 10 to one. You know, do you really need to make a thousand to one? Did Jeff Bezos really need to spend in 10 minutes what would have given every one of his 1.3 million employees a $4,200 raise, lifting many of them over poverty? So, yes, do well by yourself. Work hard, advance. But for goodness sakes, pay your fair share of taxes, pay your workers enough so they're not hungry, and stop funding politicians who are lowering wages, slashing the pay, you know, safety net, stop funding politicians and, and doing things that are going to use, you know, capitalistic monopolies to, to, to stop fair stuff. So that's number one. You know, the first thing companies do, rather than even donating to groups like mine, and I love their money, is pay their workers enough and give their workers health care, number one. Number two, if you're an entrepreneur and you're so proud in your business sense of being disruptive, that when you engage in philanthropy, why do the same old, same old? Should you be as disruptive in your philanthropy as you are in your business? And many, many, many smart people, very smart in business, abandon all their business smarts when it comes to fighting hunger. And the old way of doing it, which really isn't that effective, is funding. I love food banks. They do vital work. They fill in the gaps. So if you have extra money, support them. But you should also be supporting organizations like mine. We're fighting for the underlying changes that are really going to end hunger in America, that are advancing the safety net. The truth is the safety net, the government safety net, is far more economically efficient than charities and is 15 times the dollar amount of food distributed by charities. So our work to get government to expand that dwarfs what every food bank in America is doing. So if you're disruptive in your work, why in the world would you just give to the same old, same old charities, which are giving out food to people, never helping them move towards long-term self-sufficiency? So I challenge people in the tech world, work with us on our plans to create portals to help people apply for various benefits online, instead of still having to walk to offices and walk to 10 different offices to get eight different, you know, uh, 12 different benefits the way you would have had in 1975. So two Think differently about your philanthropy and your charity. Work with us if you're selling a food. You know, add five cents to the price and say five cents is going to hunger-free. You know, uh, America, really think entrepreneurially about how you can both increase your bottom line uh, you know, and help groups like ours. And I really believe in win-wins. So, you know, we're really working hard to help more small businesses and farmers markets access uh, benefits from the SNAP program, which used to be called the Food Stamp Program. That program is going to spend $100 billion minimum this year, $100 billion minimum. If you get even 5% market share out of those benefits because you're helping people order online and then maybe delivering to their home, that could be $5 billion worth of business. So I really do believe the best policies are ones that grow wealth for everyone. You know, Henry Ford said he wanted to pay his workers enough so they could buy his cars. And I wish more business leaders, you know, there are plenty of problems with Henry Ford. Uh, he's raised Jewish and he was armed anti-Semite. So I'm not praising his whole record. But that part was, you know, was re really, really key. And I just wish even if you don't aren't required by the minimum wage, even if you aren't required by tax laws, just look where we were 40 years ago just by the morals of it. 
business executives never would have felt comfortable 40 years ago paying themselves a thousand times what their lowest paid employees are. And now the sort of the ethics are get every cent you can and there's there's a better future. And, and sooner or later, sooner or later, this is going to come down on you because mm-hmm. no, no society in the world has really thrived if large portions of the society couldn't uh, afford the basic goods and services of our society. So a lot of this wealth, I really think, is a Ponzi scheme, as much as given the fact that we're every year just destroying the American middle class, sooner or later, it's going to crash down on people with money as well. You know what, Joe, I want to, I want to, because I want to be respectful of, of your time, so I want to make sure I get this out of you before we close. Um, shifting gears to what, I'm going to ask two questions. The first question is, what is your um, personal definition of success? The second question is if someone wants to follow the same footsteps as you. So let's just say, yes, like Brian said, the, the, you know, we have entrepreneurs in the audience, but we, what, what, what we try to do is bring people from different walks of life. So to kind of inspire people. So if someone is listening to this show and love what you're doing, but they want to go down the nonprofit route, what fundamental advice would you give them to go down that road and to rise in the ranks like you did? Great. So the first question is what, how I define success for me, yes. ending hunger in America. Ending hunger in America. And, you know, many people in my type of job go to bed really thrilled with the number of people who've been helped by them. And I'm certainly comforted that my work over my lifetimes probably helped tens of millions of Americans, but I'm haunted by the tens of millions of Americans I haven't uh, helped. And I literally intend to help lead the movement to end hunger in America or die trying. And it's that simple. So that's my definition of success. It's a high bar. But again, my father at 19, like risked his life every day. You know, so what I'm doing is bupkis, I could say, compared to what, you know, people who motivate me have done. So number one. Number two, my top advice, and if, I, if you hear nothing else from this hour, listen to me, entrepreneurs. Do not start your own nonprofit group. Do not start your own nonprofit group. There are two or three million of them in America. Every entrepreneur who knows nothing about nonprofit management thinks because you're a brilliant for-profit entrepreneur, there's this brilliant problem that you can solve that no one else has solved. Other people have been working on this 100 years, but you've looked at it for two weeks and you're convinced you're going to start your own nonprofit. Instead, help existing nonprofits. If you don't think they're functioning as well as they could, help them improve. You should virtually never start your own nonprofit. I tell you this because virtually many of your listeners, their first reaction is, I'm going to start my own nonprofit. It's a lot. It's more work than you can ever imagine. There's far more accountability for nonprofits than many you know, in the tech sector understand. And groups like ours desperately are trying to get resources, desperately are trying to get good board members, desperately are trying to raise money, desperately trying to get tech help. And then we see people, instead of working with people, frankly, who know what we're doing, who know what the challenges are that they go out and compete with us for dollars compete with us for attention so that's my top advice uh, uh, most nonprofits would not hire someone with no nonprofit experience and so I would urge other people to also volunteer but don't volunteer packing pantry bags 
you know, we have a skills-based volunteerism initiative, and you can go to hungervolunteer.org to find that, hungervolunteer.org. Say, if you're a business consultant, we can help you volunteer to use your business skills to help a, a nonprofit. If you're an accountant, you can use that. If you're a tech person or a coder or, or a web designer or graphic designer, you can use that. So volunteer, put a nonprofit, use your professional skills to volunteer, and then you, you can decide once you've gone really into the sector and really understand it's not nearly as glamorous as a lot of outsiders think. We really don't walk around with halos. It's a lot of, a lot of crap work. But if you really have done this and volunteered in the weeds and know what you're really getting into, then you can decide whether you want to, you know, try to get a job with one of these groups, whether you might want to join the board of directors, you know, of, of one of these groups, or if you haven't been persuaded by anything I've said, start your own organization. But please first do that real work with a real group before you, you, you do that. You know, I'm actually curious about your answer with this. And you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but I'm just, you just going to the Jeff Bezos example. He spent five point five billion to go into space for ten minutes. Subspace. So, sub, yeah, sub, 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 for ten minutes. What if he didn't raise the wages of his employees, but gave Hunger Free America a billion dollars? Would would you take that, or would you tell him to we we would rather you I, raise? I, the wages? I, I would take that in half a second, and then use at least a few hundred million of it to lobby for higher wages. Uh, you know, and oh, so okay. my, my definition, <laughs> my my definition uh, of uh, you know uh, my rule of whether I take money from an organization, uh, you know, an entity is not how they made the money, but what they want me to do with the money, right? Oh. And so I, you know, I take money from some corporations that don't have great wages, you know, hi- historically. Some people have been critical of us. But I will take that money, assuming there are no strings attached, or the thing they want us to do is something we agree with. I've, in a few small occasions, I've turned down some money because there were some strings that I didn't agree with. But I think how they want us to use the money is far more important than how they, 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 they got the money. So, you know, my really crass answer, unless they're wearing a swastika sticker or a hood, I will probably, you know, uh, take their money, assuming they give us flexibility to spend it how we, we, you know, we, we think it should be spent. 100%. So, Jeff, if you're listening, uh, or <laughs> maybe not him, his ex, uh, you know, she, she gave a lot of money and she researched. She never contacted us. I, I don't know that that's when he's really well informed. They're just, you know, he gave $100 million to food banks. Bezos did his ex, uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, her name is 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 evading me for just you know, what, what McKinsey Scott, you know, uh, you know, she's given I think billions to food banks, which is great. But I wish that's a good example. I wish they dig a little deeper about how they're really going to address the the root causes of, of this, uh, and, and not just for me, but plenty of organizations, their immigrant rights organization, their women's rights or, or organizations, you. Uh, Fun, fighting for the fundamental changes and the underlying conditions will do a lot more than just, you know, throwing money at an existing mess. You know, for instance, right now, it's really, really, really difficult for people to apply for government benefits, right? It's like climbing the Himalayas with lead on their back. And a lot of people fund us and others to help them climb over those mountains, which is great. But what if we spent a little extra effort taking that lead off their back? Makes a little more sense. So if you're listening, uh, you know, Ms. Scott, 
yeah, well, you can email or any of the viewers can email me at jberg at hungerfreeamerica.org. I'd be glad to discuss this with you. I'll even take you out to coffee and I'll pay. 100%. So, so, um, so Joel, so as we, as we, we wrap up, tell people what you're working on. Well, I think you've already tell, told people what Hunger for America is. You're trying to end the hunger in America. But where can people find you? What projects are you currently Yeah, you can go to hungerfreeamerica.org, hungerfreeamerica.org. And one of the things we're working on is to get a bill passed to allow people to apply for a wide variety of benefits through a smartphone. And you can go to our website about that. And you can also learn about our strategic volunteerism initiative, how you can help, how you can donate if you have the resources to do so. If anyone's hungry listening to this, you can learn about the Hunger Hotline at one 866 hungry that we run on behalf of USDA. So whether you want to give help or need help, we're there for you. And where can people find you? Do you LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram? I am on all, all, all those things. Just look up, you know, uh, Joel Berg, and I'm the Joel Berg with hunger after his name, not the Joel Berg who was the uh, creative director of Benetton or the Joel Berg who was the head of pediatric dentistry at the University of Washington or the uh, Joel Berg who is a writer for the York Daily Business Journal in York, Pennsylvania, or not the Joel Berg who is a yachtsman in, in uh, Australia, not the Joel Berg who is a right-wing uh, judge, uh, the other Joel Berg, the hunger Joel Berg. I'm, I'm <laughs> on all the platforms as well as hunger freedom. The reason I know this is I, like every egomaniac slash, you know, activist, I, you know, have to see how I'm mentioned in the news. So I have a Google, you know, alert you know, for myself. <laughs> and also I also have a Google alert for hunger. So shout out to Adam hunger, who's a sports photographer through for AP. He comes up in my Google alerts more often than anyone else on the planet because hunger's in his name. So I've never met you, but I've seen a lot of your photos because I Google hunger and there you are. So <laughs> look for Joel Berg and look for hunger, 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 free America. And we're the New York city based you know, one. There's another group calling itself by that, but we're the New York city based one and our website, hungerfreeamerica.org and hunger free USDA, USA on Twitter. Thank well, you, Joel. Joel. Well, Joel, thank you so much for spending your precious time with us. Um, Thank you, guys. I, I learned a lot uh, about so hunger, about, about what you do. Um, and hopefully you learned a lot about me. I know. Without 100%. even discussing it, because this is you know, what my values are and what my passions are. And people ask me, why am I so passionate? And I look at them like they're not. You know, that's my, my most common question. I say, tens of millions of your neighbors don't have enough food. Why aren't you? The question shouldn't mm. be why I'm passionate. The question is, why isn't everyone? about this and my goal is to make everyone equally passionate about finally ending hunger America. So thank you guys for highlighting me and thank you immortally for thank you for highlighting what we're doing. 100%. Well, that, well, that is a wrap. Joel, thank you again. And we will see you all next week. This concludes another episode of success fundamentals. We hope you found today's discussion useful to your life in some way. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.